welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. It is well with our souls today. What a beautiful day as we turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Uh, we're going to become acquainted today with a man uh, who is uh, called in Scripture. You'll find it in Acts chapter 21. He's Philip the Evangelist. In fact, Philip is the only one in Scripture who is ever referred to as the Evangelist. And uh, that, that designation to him, it, it's not assigned to, Phil, uh, to Philip merely to extinct, uh, distinguish him from Philip the Apostle. Those are two different men in Scripture, two different Philips. Uh, the title evangelist is assigned to him to stimulate our interest that we may inquire into uh, what it is an evangelist does. And Philip is now going to become uh, the prominent actor, the the main character uh, through the balance of Acts chapter 8. We first met him, we first learned about Philip back in chapter 6 when he was initially assigned along with Stephen uh, as one of the seven chosen to supply widows with a daily ration of food, uh, but that ministry had to quickly disband. Of course, Stephen uh, was martyred by stoning, and he's dead, and now Philip and almost every other Christian in Jerusalem has had to flee, and uh, things have changed greatly for the church over the last few paragraphs. Uh, Just to restate, the primary reason that Philip is is referred to as the evangelist or an evangelist is so we can reflect on his behavior to discern what does an evangelist do. Philip is surely not the only evangelist in Scripture. All of the apostles have already been acting as evangelists quite effectively. And we'll see there are many others in verse 4 who have been driven from Jerusalem by persecution. So there are now thousands of Christians who have been scattered about. We'll learn they are proclaiming the name of Christ and the good news. And thereby they are all doing the work of evangelism. Uh, in, in fact, though we know some Christians are specifically gifted in evangelism, we know that the Spirit gives gifts and some are gifted particularly in evangelism. Some are particularly gifted in serving and in generosity and many different gifts, but we all are required to serve. We're all expected to give generously. Some people are just uh, better affected by the Spirit in it. Um, I would dare to suggest that there should be no one who identifies as a Christian who has not, at least in some capacity, to some measure, 
is joining this crucial work of evangelism. Um, And since we're all commanded to obey the great commission given by our Lord Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples, uh, we all must know what it is an evangelist does. Uh, We'll begin today uh, to discover discover that exact answer, and, and that will continue throughout the rest of this chapter. Immediately, we're going to notice something peculiar. Uh, in this passage uh, about Philip, uh, there are no tents erected, no organ music. Uh, he sticks no signs in the ground promising uh, next weekend spiritual revival. And this is because John chapter 3 reveals that God the Holy Spirit is sovereign. Uh, like the wind, says Jesus, the Spirit comes and goes, it blows wherever he wishes. And Jesus says in John 3, verse 7, you don't know where that wind comes from, and you don't know where it is going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit, Uh, and for this reason, nobody can predict that next weekend we are going to have a revival. Uh, True spiritual revivals documented throughout history, uh, they've always been identified as such after the revival happened in retrospect looking back. They, they weren't predicted. Jonathan Edwards didn't predict ahead of time, and George Whitfield, we're going to have a revival. No, after they had preached, and so many had been uh, responding to it, uh, people, Christians, looked back and said, well, that was a revival, right? We'll also find with Philip the Evangelist and the rest of the Bible uh, that there are never emotionally driven altar calls by Philip. Um, that innovation of you stirring up emotions uh, until somebody finally comes forward, uh, that remained foreign to Christianity until the 19th century when a man named Charles Grandison Finney uh, invented that. And many solid theologians throughout time since then have questioned as to whether Charles Finney was even a Christian. And they advise that Finney may be or more accurately classified as an example of what evangelism is not. We are going to take a closer look at Finney during our summer series, Heresies of the Church Age. That will be Wednesday, uh, uh, August 23rd. And that's when we're going to discuss an early church heresy uh, called Pelagianism. Pelagianism. Uh, A few things. Finney did not believe in original sin, or that man has a sin nature. He did not believe Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross as a substitutionary atonement, uh, and he did not call on people to trust that the Lord had done that. Um, so, So what did he do? What did Finney do? Uh, He did stir up a lot of people into an emotional state, uh, but he did not call for an intellectual and a rational response uh, to the reality that the sinless Lamb of God uh, had to be crucified and hung on a cross bearing our sins and our shame in his body. Philip's approach in chapter 8 actually will exhibit a number of contrasts to tactics of folks like Finney. And uh, we will also discover that Philip became just one of many thousands 
of evangelists who were forced to abandon their homes, leave their unsaved family members and loved ones behind, and even vacated their jobs to flee severe persecution that had erupted uh, in Jerusalem following the stoning of Stephen. And of course, we observed that exodus from Jerusalem beginning last Sunday. Uh, In verses 1 through 3, we learned that Saul, uh, he was ravaging the church, moving house after house, uh, and dragging off both men and women to be uh, to be incarcerated. What what a scene! No wonder everybody uh, was fleeing for their lives. Um, now I I understand our initial reaction to that. I really do. Our initial reaction is to assume, you know, how awful it is that that Christians had to leave Jerusalem, to leave their lives, to to leave their homes. Uh, but no worries. No worries. Why? Uh, in, in Mark 10, verse 29, Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, uh, bet that he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, uh, eternal life. Uh, Folks, God not only preserves, as we learned clearly last Sunday, uh, God is in sovereign control of everything we have been watching happen uh, to the church in Jerusalem. He hasn't, lo- he hasn't taken his hands off the wheel. Uh, he hasn't lost control. Therefore, when, when you legitimately suffer loss for the gospel, when, when you're truly preaching the gospel and you legitimately suffer loss, folks, you trade up. When you evangelize, you gain brothers and sisters and mothers and homes who welcome you in. Increase can be around a hundredfold, says Jesus. And new homes are Christ's reward to those who persevere through this persecution and tribulation for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. There will be many, many homes you will have. And of course, uh, I know the prosperity preacher you watch on television has told you this means that if you just have enough faith, oh boy, you're, you're literally going to get a hundred homes. Vacation homes, beach homes, mountain homes, European homes. You're just going to flourish is what that means. No, that, that is not right. That is not right. Uh, That Mark 10 passage promises that after a loss, even a crushing loss, through the gospel, God provides new brothers and new sisters. You know, who is my brother and who is my sister, said Jesus? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, New family members, hundreds of them, uh, and they have houses who will invite you in. uh, If needed, if you need a place, they will make you feel right at home. Uh, But that's their homes. That's their homes, and uh, but they you partake in their homes, and those homes are opened to you. A lot like you go to your parents, right? 
You go to your parents. Now you have your own home and they have their home, but you go in and you're right at home. And that's the way Christians are uh, one to another. Uh, Many, many homes that you can enter that are like your own. And knowing God provides for our every need and for their need back in Jerusalem, uh, that should make for us uh, what happened to these Christians you know, slightly less disturbing as they fled Jerusalem into the sur- surrounding region of Judea. Even we'll find as far as Samaria, which is to the north. And, and all of these Christians, uh, you know, evangelists like Philip, will in the end have gained much. Much through being faithful to Christ and his gospel, uh, because we're eventually all going to reap what we sow. And uh, the scattering about, it's quickly now spawned new ministries. Ministries like Phillips, they're, they're thriving ministries, and uh, it is good that they left Jerusalem. You ask, how is that? Well, their recent experience of persecutions and tribulation had forced them to leave Jerusalem. It's, it's in about 35 AD, the year 35. But that is nothing compared to a great tribulation that God is going to bring upon Jerusalem beginning in the year 66 AD. That, that will be just about 30 more years that will begin to pour in. And uh, we discovered last Sunday through reading Luke chapter 21 that soon this same town, this city, Jerusalem, will experience the days of the Lord's vengeance and wrath upon these people, says Jesus. And therefore, these Christians, you know, they wouldn't want to be in Jerusalem anyhow. When Emperor Vespasian begins to roll in with his armies uh, from the north, coming through Galilee to begin in 66 AD is when those armies began to to roll into the region. Why put down your roots any further? Why raise your kids there locally and keep making payments on your home anyhow, knowing that Jesus had warned when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies... That's Luke 21, verse 20. Don't even return to your house, but flee to the mountains. If you're on the top of the house, this is going to happen so quickly. If you're on the top of the house, don't even go down. If you're in the field, don't even return to the town. Flee. Uh, Christians were going to lose their houses anyhow. Clock was already ticking. You know, folks, there's wrath coming again. When Christ returns, there's going to be a wrath upon unbelievers. Are you really that concerned about what you might leave behind? Your houses, your property, other are we really concerned about what we're going to be able to keep when Christ returns? No, no. These people as well, they're not worried. They know what's coming. Uh, They are going out to obey uh, the Lord, and they've been removed uh, from Jerusalem as an act of God's mercy. Records written by the Jewish historian Josephus 
uh, confirmed that the suffering endured by those who remained in Jerusalem uh, brought the severest agony ever experienced by a city under siege. Some of the documentation I can't even share uh, because of some of the children who are with us, I will just uh, hold off on that. But it was uh, truly uh, devastating. The entire city and the Jewish temple became completely desolate. Uninhabitable is what desolate means. Uh, not one stone was left upon another for the temple. Jerusalem was destroyed because the nation of Israel had rejected and had crucified the Messiah that God had promised through the prophets to send. He was going to send them his very own son, Jesus Christ. Uh, They rejected him. They crucified him. Uh, Desolation also came. This is accurately or was accurately predicted by the prophetic writings of Daniel. And this is because the dawn, at the dawn of the new covenant, that was ratified in Christ's body and in his blood, a new promise, a new covenant uh, through our Lord Jesus. By the way, the final Passover lamb, do you agree? The final Passover lamb named Jesus Christ, uh, the sin, uh, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, we are told, uh, Daniel was assured by an angel named Gabriel that after atonement had been made for iniquity, that God would put a full stop to all other temple sacrifices and offerings because God no longer accepts any alternate sacrifice for sin. Spoke about three or four weeks ago, the temple temple sacrifices with Christ, temple sacrifices are done. The blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sins. This morning, if you were an adult Bible class, Mike Clements was teaching us that even under the law, God had always considered obedience and listening to his word better than any sacrifice. That was even under the law. When Christ took his disciples to up on a mountain, and we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, where Christ was transfigured before them, uh, we are told that a voice came and, and from heaven and said, This is my son. Listen to him. Obey him. And that is the command that is left with us today. Uh, accounts in the Gospels, of course, say, you know, even the, the demonic spirits, the evil spirits obey Jesus. The wind and the seas we learn obey Jesus. Um, what do you think we ought to be doing? Better be obeying Jesus. Uh, John 3.36 says that he who does not obey the Son does not have life. Won't see life without obedience to the Son. Christians forced uh, to depart Jerusalem uh, due to persecution had been shown God's mercy toward those whom He loves. And some 30 years before Jerusalem and its temple were desolated, uh, God allowed tribulation to drive his elect out of Jerusalem, and in doing so spared most of them from a great tribulation that was to come. There was just, in 70 AD, when it finally went down, 
when, when the city was completely desolated, temple was torn down uh, stone by stone, uh, there, there were only a handful of Christians, small handful of Christians, uh, who got swept into that persecution in Jerusalem under the Roman siege. Uh, that's simply because they didn't heed Jesus' word. Said when it's surrounded, you see Jerusalem surrounded, begin to be surrounded by armies, flee. Flee. In verse 4, we find that precisely because God had allowed the persecutions by Saul, uh, the majority of Christians were already enjoying fruitful ministry elsewhere in Judea, into Samaria. Uh, One of them is called Philip. One of them is Philip the Evangelist. Let's read from Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. We have a little better perspective on suffering. If God did that for them, imagine you and you wonder, why is my life in such turmoil? Why did the deal fall through? Why didn't the house close? Why do we have to move on? Why are we going elsewhere? God hasn't lost control. In suffering or what you feel may be unjust, God is... God has a way and a path for your life if you trust in His Son. And uh, there's nothing to fear. He's going to, he's going to preserve you uh, by His Spirit and, and use you for the work that He has uh, for you to do. There's nothing to fear here as the people fled Jerusalem. In verse 4, we begin to read, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them and shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city." Again, now Philip is in Samaria. Verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly, formerly indicates this was prior to Philip coming to Samaria. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were given attention to him, uh, saying, uh, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because uh, he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Again, Simon's uh, popularity was before Philip uh, arrived. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed and was, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, Simon was constantly amazed. What our passage immediately reveals is... uh, how Christians forced out of Jerusalem continued acting just like you and me. Verse 4 assures, they too went about preaching the word. Concerning Philip, verse 5, 
He happened to land in a city of Samaria. There's no way for us to know exactly which one. Scripture doesn't say. Uh, But he began, of course, by telling the Samaritans, we preach Christ. What else would evangelists do? The thousands scattered just continued to do what they had always been doing. Uh, Remember, Scripture credits spirit-driven evangelism as the reason the church in Jerusalem had grown so quickly. Back in Acts 4, we studied this just a short time ago. Back in Acts 4, verse 31, we learned that early on, even early on in the church, this is way back when there was only just a few thousand of them. Back when they got started. Early on, that with one voice they all prayed. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all began speaking the Word of God with boldness. Early on, they had embraced their primary purpose, which was reaching the lost. They were not confused on what they were left here for uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven uh, to be seated at the right hand of God. Um, Even back then, they were all preaching Christ with boldness, even though chapter 4 verse 17 revealed they had been strictly warned by the Sanhedrin. The King James Version says they were straightly threatened. The courts straightly threatened them to no longer speak to any man in this name. So gospelizing, it always been a a hazardous occupation. Would we think now that they are going to stop preaching Christ simply because after the stoning of Stephen, it had gotten a little more dangerous? They just abandon everything, just just drop it now. No chance. No chance. They didn't stop. Verse 4 reveals that they just moved on to a new location uh, into Judea and Samaria where where God provided these Christians with a, a whole new audience to preach to. Their zip code didn't matter a lick. Folks, it's just like when we moved to Port St. Lucie. Changed location didn't change anything at all. Um, They continued on preaching the word. Uh, Regardless of where Christians are living, we're going to keep on doing what we are doing. And persecution and criminal prosecution... Persecution and prosecution by Saul uh, was not going to stop them from evangelizing any more than peace and prosperity have been stopping us from doing what we're doing. Right? What exactly is it that we're doing? Before you answer that, before you answer that, let me get a drink. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what these early Christians, you know, brutally forced to flee their homes and abandon 
their lives or, or face arrest and criminal prosecution uh, may be worse. Can you imagine what these early Christians would think if they visited us today? And what would these unwavering saints of ancient day who, who abandoned everything say to Americans, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, who refused to even politely hand out a gospel tract or invite people to church or gather to pray for open doors for the word. Boy, I'm glad that none of these dubious traits uh, describe us, right? That, that would be awkward. But just imagine hypothetically, what do you believe persecuted persecuted Christians would say to Americans? And what do you think Jesus might say? Is it possible he would say, I have this against you, that you've lost your first love. You've left it. You've left your first love. Um, Boy, if you've concluded that now, boy, that pastor is just trying to make us feel bad, You're wrong. You are wrong. I am not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm not trying to make anyone feel anything. I'm inviting us to think using the gray matter, the mind, rational minds, both yours and mine. Uh, I've prayed to God that he will provoke us to respond to this, not emotionally, but intellectually and pragmatically, that we'd respond to an urgent exhortation from his word. (laughs) If Saul were to arrest you or me, I've struggled with this as much this week as you probably are now. If Saul were to arrest us, and if you stood trial as a Christian before the Sanhedrin, um, would there be enough evidence to convict? If so, what would your prison sentence be? Five years? Ten years? Twenty to life? Or, uh, Or would the Sanhedrin let you off for good behavior? Would Saul even stop, bother to stop by and knock on your door? And would the people who are living around you and ho- who know you tattle? There's one of those Christians over there. Been trying to get me to church. Handed out this tracked ticket to heaven. Go over there, get him, Saul. Folks, this is not about Feelings. It is an intellectual challenge to get us to think using our heads. It engages our mind. It engages our spirit. Uh, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. Making people feel bad was the approach of Charles Finney. He He misdiagnosed emotions, especially cries and tears, as fruits of the spirit. Um, I, I don't see cries and tears listed in Galatians chapter 5. 
I'm not teasing anyone's emotions. I'm just asking our minds, does the content of our faith reflect what is seen among these early Christians in the first eight chapters of Acts? And do we believe the substance of our faith matters? Another way that could be asked is, what kind of faith do we have? And can that kind of faith save us? Or does it look a bit more like Simon's, about whom Scripture first tells us that he believed? He even was baptized in verse 13. Uh, but will, well, like Ananias and Sapphira, I could suppose, uh, he's going to be exposed as a fraud. That, that's, going to, that's going to be exposed the next time that we are together in verses 14 through 24. You know, some immediately conclude, and I understand why, from verse 13, that Simon himself believed. But as we progress in the story, we must also recall how Scripture uses the same Greek word, it's pisteu. Scripture uses the same Greek word in James 2.19 to describe demons. So Simon believed. I have to ponder, what did he believe? Because James writes, even the demons believe. A more crucial question would be, what exactly is it about Jesus that you believe? And can that kind of faith save you? Is it a faith that is provable in a courtroom by the evidence of its works? Let's say we better make sure. We better make sure that we'll be convicted. Not just of our errors today, convicted in the courtroom of faith followed by works. This ought to really, really challenge us. Something we just don't pass on by. Are we really moved by the Spirit as the early church was moved? Is that the Spirit that is in us? If it's not, what do we conclude? There are scores of people in America, um, I don't lump us in with this. Um, I think there are some very outstanding Christians here uh, among us, many actually. But there are scores of people in America who describe themselves as people of faith. They identify as to some extent, as followers of Jesus. Um, that is what Charles Finney, by the way, called, called people to become. Become followers of Jesus. It's a definition of faith. Couldn't get much more vague than that. Um, what is it that you believe about Jesus? Many, like Simon, have believed one thing or another about Jesus. They've even been baptized Verse 13 reveals, for a time, Simon continued on with Philip. He, he observed signs, great miracles taking place. Simon was, we read, he was constantly amazed with what he saw. 
Um, did Simon believe that this Jesus would give him supernatural power to display signs and wonders like Philip was displaying? I have no idea what Simon believed. No clue why he desired to be baptized. Uh, I do know, however, the, the nature of Simon's request of the apostles. Um, and I know how Peter responds next time. I know also what the early church fathers, uh, how they described Simon. His name was Simon Magnus. Uh, we, we abbreviate that Simon the sorcerer. Um, I know how the early church fathers described him. That is next time. Simon, Simon's going to reap what he sows, just as we will reap what we sow. But the chapter isn't ultimately about Simon. Um, it, it's about Philip and about his work as an evangelist. And though we can't know exactly what Simon believed, uh, the text does reveal the substance of what what Philip preached, what he preached. First and foremost, like thousands of others described in verse 4, Philip went about preaching the word of God. That's number one. Evangelism always leans on what God has said. Preaching of the word authoritatively. Secondly, in verse 5, Philip Proclaimed Christ, we see uh, a brand new audience in Samaria. Evangelists are always, you know, feeling for and pushing for an open door to the gospel. We pray that God will give us an open door to the gospel. And Philip was, was pushing to see if there's a door here or there at the gas pump, the person at the store, uh, feeling out, is there a conversation here that can be, that can be, uh, adjusted to drive towards eternal life in Jesus Christ. So uh, Philip found the door, so he proclaimed Christ when that door opened. Um, thirdly, verse 12, Philip was also preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and, and the name of Jesus Christ. That summarizes the content of his message. If we were to reflect back at chapters 1 through 6... The content of both Stephen's and Philip's ministries were a mere reflection of everything that they had heard the apostles preach. And like the apostles, their, their ministries were even validated through miracles. Uh, but our text exposes one major difference. Uh, Stephen and Philip were not apostles. They weren't apostles. And as the church marches forward into a new age, this is going to become very crucial. How do we know for sure that they were not apostles? Well, because verse 1 of this chapter assures that thousands of Christians, including Philip, had been scattered about. Everybody fled Jerusalem. Almost everybody. The last three words of verse 1 say, except the apostles. The 12 apostles remained in Jerusalem. We'll discover more reasons why uh, going forward in the future. But Philip is not in Jerusalem. He is in Samaria. Philip's not an apostle. No Christian who had fled was an apostle because the apostles rem remained back in Jerusalem. 
And, and since the 12 apostles stayed in Jerusalem, who began, who began preaching everywhere else? Non-apostles. And it was everybody else. And we should find and notice that there is a, another transition now underway. The responsibility of preaching the gospel, it is migrating away from the twelve. This is one major region, reason Scripture documents how the apostles remained in Jerusalem. It amplifies how God is now clearly working through others, you know, e- even regular old schmucks like you and me, as non-apostles now begin taking the lead. Who's at the tip of the spear? Well, it's Philip. Many others just like Philip. And what Philip is doing, it's not distinct. It's not separate from what the apostles have been doing. We'll learn next time. It's rather an extension of the same message and the same work, the same ministry of the apostles. And uh, in the next passage, Peter and John are going to come. They're going to visit and they're going to place their stamp of approval on Philip's ministry. But uh, by the end of this chapter, though, though John and Peter are going to show up in Samaria and put their stamp of approval on this, by the end of the chapter, the twelve will be completely removed from the scene of Philip and an Ethiopian uh, who is a eunuch. Um, as the work of the gospel continues, that Ethiopian goes on down into uh, Africa. Uh, but this, this work continues outward, uh, but independently from the apostles. It's almost as if the twelve had laid a foundation for the church, and everybody else is beginning to build the church upon it. I don't want to get completely sidetracked with that because we're going to talk about that going forward, but please notice the ministry of the twelve, uh, evangelism and preaching the word, is migrating outward from the apostles as many others now have received a share of this same ministry. They all received a share, well, <laughs> except Simon. We're going to learn next time, verse 21 re- reveals, no share for you. No portion in this ministry for you, says Peter. Uh, but God has given Philip and thousands of others a share of the gospel. What will they do with it? They'll reap what they sow. As a result of this sharing, the gospels branched into new places, into Samaria. Uh, we're, fi- we're going to find this is very important because Samaritans were, were half-breed Jews. They weren't full Jews. They, they had basically intermarried with Gentiles. That's one, reason, one of the reasons they were so repulsive to, to the full-blood Jews in Jerusalem and, and Judea. Um, but Samaritans were still genetic descendants of Abraham. Their, their bloodline was just a little thinner. Will the Samaritans get accepted into the church? Has anyone here done one of those DNA tests or genetic tests or whatever it is? Has anyone here discovered that, that you have a, a, a partial amount of, of uh, Hebrew blood in you? 
Yes, yeah, we, we got a couple hands that go up there. Um, are you accepted in the church? Sure, sure. Samaritans are going to be accepted by the apostles, um, which was first demonstrated by Jesus himself. During our scripture reading earlier, you know, all 12 were present with Jesus uh, with, during that during that interaction or, or the, the consequences of that discussion of, with the woman at the well. That's when her whole hometown came pouring out to meet Jesus. They're the ones who professed in the end that no, we do now believe this, this one indeed is the Savior of the world. It's important for Samaritans. They, 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 were, felt, they, were, uh, they were groomed to feel that they were not part uh, of of the Savior's work by by the Jews. No, no, it's the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of Jerusalem or the Savior of Judea. Now they're in Samaria as it migrates out. Uh, so the success really, since they were there, the success of Philip in ministry in Samaria, it isn't really going to amaze Peter and John uh, when they come to visit our next time. Uh, because the church is now broadening its scope beyond Jerusalem. Christians keep on preaching Christ, uh, each because they've been granted a share of this ministry. Well, what else would Christians do? And isn't it interesting how, you know, since everybody had lost everything, or most everything, they didn't have U-Haul moving vans to load their stuff up and take it with them. It's what you could basically carry or have on a donkey. Isn't it interesting how these Christians... You know, they aren't pictured as, you know, organizing an emotional support group for displaced Christians. Even following all this loss, all the financial uh, uh, ruin, all the court proceedings, many imprisoned as criminals, isn't it amazing how they persevere? Isn't it amazing how God takes care of them? Puts a whole new spin on Jesus' words. When I was in prison, you visited me. You were not ashamed of me. You came to me. You know, in those passages, Jesus is always talking about caring for his body uh, the church, other Christians, our brethren in Christ. Uh, as often as you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Christ says for the benefit of Christians, uh, he says this who, for those who are persecuted and suffering. Uh, how about, you know, when I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was hungry or thirsty, uh, thirsty uh, you gave me something to eat. I needed water, you gave me something to drink. You know, all these statements by Jesus become a frame around helping the brother or sister who is in need, who is suffering, especially for their faith, for the gospel, as often as you did it to one of them. It's as if you did it to Jesus Christ himself. It's one of the reasons that we will remain committed to our ministry uh, we call Christian Poverty Relief. That as there are Christians around the globe who have been forced out of their homes, 
Uh, Southeast Asia, we've learned recently from our missionary that hundreds of churches have been burned. Uh, Middle East, other areas and stuff like that, uh, that we, we know there are widows of martyrs out there that we Part of our church budget is to send money to those who are suffering for the gospel today because it's just like we're doing it to Christ himself. We will continue that ministry uh, observing what we see here. How about the content of Philip's evangelistic message? We're almost done. Um, What did he preach? The passage says Christians like Philip went about preaching the word, the gospel of the kingdom, and Christ as Messiah. How does that impact our message before we leave? Since thousands of Christians had either left or lost virtually everything they own, how many were evangelizing in this way? Let me tell you how God changed my life after I trusted in Jesus. Where this passage exposes that evangelism tactic is a complete farce. Philip does not preach, oh, let me reassure you how much better my life has become after I trusted in Christ now that I'm a Christian. I'm having my best life now. That idea of evangelism does not establish a glorious church rooted in the Word of God, and founded on the bedrock of Christ. It's not about your experience. The selfish appeal of attaining your best life now by trusting in Jesus, that all that builds is spiritual shacks, founded on the shifting sands of experience. How is my experience Change. That's just shifting sand. Experiences change. Sometimes our experiences stink. I've run into people you probably have as well. Uh, They'll come and they'll say, you're a Christian? You go to church? I used to. I used to go to church. Um, I go, what what changed? You know, Christianity really didn't work for me. I'm like, Christianity didn't work for you. What do you mean? You weren't being persecuted? What didn't work right? They're basing everything upon their experience, not upon the word of God. Uh, So Philip does not preach a gospel message on his experience because that would be altering and adulterating the gospel message. It's not about... Philip's experience or your experience or my experience. Philip's experience stinks. His first message message that he preached in Samaria, by the way, it was properly titled, appropriately titled, uh, Let Me Tell You What Happened to My Old Buddy Stephen. I just made that part up. But that would have to be part of the content, wouldn't it? People would be like, ooh, that didn't sound... Didn't sound inviting. What they heard is that Jesus Christ dying for our sins so that I am now clean. My, my slate is wiped clean so that I can have fellowship with God our Father Almighty. Oh, that's what's inviting. Inviting enough for all these people to abandon everything that they had in order to continue to follow him. 
The gospel is never to be adjusted to please the culture we live in. You know, we don't make it work for them. Uh, the, the veracity of the Word of God, it's, it's timeless. It does not change uh, with the shifting sands of experience or the changes in culture. Every biblical text transcends space and time. It's already, uh, by divine nature, the Word is cross-cultural already. Uh, uh, that, that would mean... Any sermon I have preached or anyone else has preached here, um, that would mean that uh, I ought to be able to hypothetically retrieve that script out of my computer and preach it effectively to ancient Sumerians, Samaritans, people in Samaria. I ought to be able to go over to, if I've been faithful to the text in interpreting the text, I ought to be able to go over to modern day Somalia and preach that same message obviously adjusting some of the, the illustrations and other things. God and His Word do not change. Likewise, the gospel and evangelizing does not change. You know, man's sinful nature, it's, it's always remained the same. Therefore, evangelism always remains the same. There's no such thing as a distinctly American gospel that suits us particularly. Um, trusting in Jesus will not make you rich, won't get you a hundred homes, doesn't assure long and healthy life, might bring persecution. It won't assure peace, therefore, in your life and won't assure prosperity for you and your family, you know what it'll bring? It'll bring the peace of knowing that you are restored with the God who created you. That's what the blood of Christ does. Full restoration of God and man through the blood of Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to give their life and live for that? Trust in the one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, just like with the ancient Samaritans. That's all we really need today. Because this one is indeed the Savior of the world. In short, evangelism is is this simple. Life is short. Death is sure. Sin the cause, Christ the cure. Or in the words of the late W.A. Criswell, he was a pastor for many years at First Baptist Dallas before Jeffress got there. Uh, He said, uh, God is love, the Bible's true, hell is hot, and Jesus saves. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Hallelujah the gospel proclaimed today. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll depart and enjoy the rest of our day. Father, it is a glorious gospel that you have given us uh, to be able to, to hear uh, in your word and in our own language uh, the reconciliation that we have in you that uh, 
since your sinless son died for our sins on the cross, that, that now he bears our sin, he bears our shame, that it was a literal substitution for our sins, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Uh, Father, now we can know that we are made clean through faith in Jesus Christ and entrusting in him. Uh, added on to that, Lord, we pray that we would be made more holy sanctified to do your work, to be, to be ready to, to offer the gospel to those doors that are open, to uh, be loving neighbors and, and, uh, and to reach people uh, who are lost, those who are dead in sins and don't have the wonderful hope that we do, uh, even though at some point it might cost us something. Father, we're thankful for the freedom we enjoy, the... Uh, uh, the wonderful circumstances in which we live uh, help us to remember that for many we're speaking to, this can be shifting sand. That they think this is always God's will, uh, that we just always prosper and, and always, uh, always have wealth and health and all these things. Father, uh, uh, let us help people to look beyond that at, uh, at death, at which each of us will face unless your son comes back uh, soon, uh, Father, that there, there needs to be a reconciliation of sins. The accounts must be settled and help us to, to focus people's minds upon that as your spirit convicts them of sin, that uh, they, would, uh, they would truly indeed join uh, our song that uh, Christ himself is indeed the Savior of the world, Lord. Thank you for today. Thank you for these wonderful people. The blessing that we are to one another in your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.